Um, we are in what I call kind of a mission and vision series. We're spending three weeks talking about this is what we do. Every church on the planet has the exact same mission from God. God created his church for one reason and one reason only. To go into all the nations and make disciples. That's the point of the church. The point of the church is to equip men and women to see them come to faith in Jesus, to see them grow in their faith in Jesus, and to send them out in the name of Jesus to see other people come to Jesus. That's the point. Sometimes we can get a little distracted. We can think, no, well, no, church is supposed to be about this. Church is supposed to be about this. Church is supposed to be about this. At the end of the day, the reason we gather is to fulfill what Jesus has called us to as men and women and boys and girls who bear his name, is to go and make disciples. But every single church has a little bit of a, has a DNA, has a personality, and will go about the mission of God in a different way. Because every church has got different gifts and different talents and abilities. And so what I want to do over the next three weeks, which we started last week, is talking about what makes us unique as a church. What has God called us to and how is God growing us to fulfill the mission that he calls us to? And as we kind of kick off week two of this series, I want you to get in your mind a picture of a person that you know. I would like for you to call to mind someone who you greatly admire. I want you to think of that person. Who is that person that you greatly admire? I just want you to think about that man or that woman for a moment. And what I want to ask you is this. What is it about that person that you admire? Why do you admire them? Is it because they're really smart? Is it because they're really educated? Because they're just like an expert in their field? What is it about that individual which causes you to, th- to bring that person to mind and say, man, I really admire her, or I really admire him? I was thinking about that myself this past week, and I have met a lot of different people over the years who I greatly admire. And um, a number of years ago, about 12 years ago, I was on a business trip down in Florida, and I had an opportunity to sit down with my uh, famous Christian mentors. I kind of get, like, Christian crushes on people. It's kind of weird. I get pastor crushes on people and leaders and things like that because I so admire them. And I get all, like, giddy, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I'm meeting this person. So bizarre. I don't know why I do it, but I just do. And I had this opportunity to meet an author who had a huge influence in my life. It was this guy named Patrick Morley. And he wrote a book about 25 years ago. 25 years ago called the man in the mirror and when i was a brand new christian i didn't know what it meant to be a christian man living in our culture today and someone had given me a copy of this book and i devoured it absolutely devoured it and i started following this guy online and watching all of his teaching and reading all of his stuff i felt like an online stalker the way i was just absolutely obsessed with this individual but then i had a chance to sit down with him face to face And I always admired his work. I always admired his teaching. I always admired his writing. But when I finally got down to meet him, everything changed. Because what I remember the most about my hour and a half with Patrick Morley is, this is a man who deeply knows Jesus. This is a man who deeply 
knows Jesus. And that had a huge impact over the next 10 years of my life, just spending an hour and a half with someone who deeply knew Jesus. And that is the exact same call that you and I have on our lives as well. (laughs) To be men and women, boys and girls, who deeply know Jesus and have that kind of impact in the world. So last week we started this series off and we looked at a number of passages in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And we saw from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 61 that Isaiah gives this prophetic message that the Christ will come. And then Jesus reads the same prophetic message in a synagogue and says, today this prophecy becomes true in your hearing. And then we saw how then Jesus calls his disciples and says, all these things that have been said about me, you will do these and even greater things. And we saw at the end of, uh, sorry, in chapter 61 of Isaiah in verse 3, we read this. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They, being the people of God, at one time the people of Israel, now the church, the, that we will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Greenbelt Church is planted here in this community, in this day and age, to be a display of God's splendor. So for the three weeks of this series, kind of the key theme that I want us to keep reminding ourselves is this, is that you and I are the display of God's splendor. And here at Greenbelt, we do that by knowing, living, and sharing Jesus. Last week, we kicked this off talking about the idea of knowing Jesus. And today, I want to continue this talking about living Jesus. And again, just as a little bit of a reminder, how we go about living this out in our church context is this graphic here. These three circles, which we spared absolutely no expense on, we hired the best graphic artists we could find in the city to design this logo for us. We're going to pull this up on the screen. We, as a church, see, you can see, we, man, no expenses. We spared no expenses on this. We asked that if you're a part of this church family, not only do we ask this, we kind of expect this. <laughs> We expect this, that if God has called you to be a part of this church family, we we kind of expect this is how you are growing in your faith because we do it this way. I love it when people come to our church and say, well, pastor, um, you know, at this church down the road, they do it like that. I went, okay, cool. Well, I like how they do it better over there, pastor. You should do that too. I got another idea. (laughs) We do it this way (laughs) because this is what God's put on our hearts. And what we ask is that you make Sunday a regular part of your life. We talked about that last week. We're going to talk about it more this week. Sunday is important. We also talked about being part of a small group, of doing life together with other people is incredibly important. We talked about that last week. We're going to talk about that more again today. And then finally, we ask that people serve. If you have put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has given you a supernatural gift that the church needs to accomplish the mission that 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 God has for us as a church. Christianity was never meant to be something I just sit in a chair and consume. Christianity was supposed to be a faith faith that we are all a part of this together as a body. And so we ask that everyone learns what those gifts are and and serve in a way to be a blessing to others. So I'm going to unpack this a little bit. And so today we're going to talk about living Jesus. 
But before I could talk about living Jesus, I need to go back a little bit and talk a little bit more about knowing Jesus. I need to talk about knowing Jesus because everything starts with knowing Jesus. You can't do those three circles. You can't do the living Jesus. You can't do the sharing Jesus if you have a problem in your knowing Jesus. And there's a great verse for me that shows the type of knowledge we're talking about. When I say knowing Jesus, I'm not talking about head knowledge, even though head knowledge is a part of it. I'm talking about the kind of knowledge that changes you. A deep, intimate knowledge that completely changes who you are because of the knowledge you have received. And there's a great verse in the Bible that explains that type of knowledge. It's in Genesis chapter 4. It's one of my favorite verses in the Old, in, in the Old Testament. I love this verse. It's a great verse. Uh, it's, it's a very popular verse. They've even talked about this verse in the TV show Seinfeld. <laughs> okay? Great verse. And it's, the, it, it's a, the best translation for it, in my opinion, is in the old King James Version. I think King James got it right. Kicking it old school. It says this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And Adam knew Eve. Adam knew Eve. The the word knew here comes from the Hebrew word yada. Great word. That's what they made fun of in Seinfeld when they were trying to meet people, going yada, yada, yada. (laughs) The implication is Adam knew his wife in the biblical sense. And the biblical sense, when you read how the verse continues, and she conceived. It's the ultimate knowledge of intimacy between two people. Adam knew Eve deeply and intimately. See, years before I met my wife, Danielle, years before we started dating, I knew about Danielle. I knew about Danielle for probably about four years before we ever met face-to-face. Because the way that we met up is we had a mutual friend. And this mutual friend for four years was trying to get us to date. And this lady was relentless. Every time I would see this lady, Kevin, let me tell you about Danielle. Let me tell you what Danielle did this week. Let me tell you all about Danielle. And so I knew tons about Danielle. But that knowledge of Danielle in absolutely no way changed my life. In any way whatsoever. It did not change my life in any way. I was still meeting other people and dating other people. No, that's not true. I didn't date. I stunk at dating. You know that. Okay? And, but I tried real hard <laughs> in dating. Right? But that, not, that type of knowledge changed nothing. But then I met her. And we got to know one another deeply and intimately. And it changed everything. Danielle and I still, 20 years later, have we go out for coffee on Wednesday afternoons and we intentionally talk about our marriage and how we're doing. And I'm still getting to know her. And it still changes me how I'm living. And that's the type of knowledge I am talking about. The type of knowledge of Jesus that the only response to it is it must change how I live. 
If it stays in our heads and doesn't go anywhere else, there's a problem. You know, and I say this a lot, kind of as a Bible teacher, as a pastor, and, and I do. I say this out of love, and I say this out of care. And it, sometimes it sounds harsh when I say it. I, I realize that. But if you're here today and your knowledge of Jesus is not changing your life, you have a problem. You have a religious problem. You have a law problem. I don't, you have a sin problem. I don't know what it is. But I would love for you to get connected with someone. If your knowledge of Jesus is not changing your life, you have a problem you need to look at. Because I'm not talking about head knowledge that just puffs us up. I'm talking about a knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who saved us from hell, who brings us into a right relationship with God, who equips us and empowers us through his spirit to accomplish his will in the world. It changes us. It has to. And if it isn't changing you, you've got to explore that and look at that. So this is what we do when it comes to living Jesus in our church. And, and there's lots of ways I could have attacked this topic. There's lots of ways that you and I are called to live out our faith in Jesus. But what I want to do is I want to focus on two things today. And I want to focus on the cross. I want to first focus on this vertical relationship that we have with God. How we live out our faith is directly impacted in our vertical relationship with God. I want to talk about that vertical relationship. I want to talk about worship. How you and I live Jesus through our worship. And then I want to talk about this horizontal relationship that we have with one another as the church. As fellow believers. I'm not talking today how you and I live our lives with non-Christians. That's next week's message. Today I want to talk about how you and I live our lives in nurturing relationships as the body of Christ together. So how do we do this? This is what we do in living Jesus. I want to talk first about what I call, and I stole this from, from another author. I stole this from James McDonald from his book, Vertical Church. Probably the best book I've ever read on this topic in my life. I want to talk about for a moment unashamed adoration. Unashamed adoration. I've said this before and I say this again and I'm preaching to the choir because you're in the room. (laughs) Sunday morning is of incredible importance in your faith journey. And I say this with all the statistics and all the numbers and all the experience to back it up. When people start disappearing from Sunday morning, they eventually disappear from the faith. Every time. Every time. I have yet to meet the, un, the on-fire, spirit-filled believer in Jesus who is not worshiping God regularly in the presence of his people. Okay? Sunday is incredibly important because we gather here to worship. Now, worship in your Bible, there are two different definitions for worship. We call it worship in English, but in Hebrew and Greek, there are actually two different things at play. The first is the idea of living your life as a spiritual act of worship. How you are living is worshipful. And that comes from the verses that talks about that all of us are now priests. 
Everything that we do is a holy act. What this is, is because we now are Christians, we have the Holy Spirit in us, it's as if we are the old priests of Israel. Before, it was only the priests who were allowed to come into the presence of God. It was only the, the, the Levites, the priests, whose work was holy and set apart. But because we now have the Spirit of God in us, all of us are set apart. We're all set apart. I was talking with someone just yesterday and you was know, talking about the differences between different faiths. And one of the things that had come up was, you know, like, well, do I have to come to you for confession? I was like, goodness gracious me, no. Go straight to, the, go straight to Jesus. You don't need a middleman. I'm not this holy man who has to be this mediator between you and God. You have a mediator. His name's Jesus. <laughs> okay. So, yes, there is this, we are, our lives are set apart, we're living holy lives, and so that is a spiritual act of worship. It is set apart. But then the worship that I want to focus on for a little bit, as we talk about living out our faith, living out Jesus, is the adoration part of worship. It's the praise of God. You see, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus or any of the apostles do away with the corporate worship of God. Nowhere. 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 Nowhere does it do away. God is a God who seeks out praise from his children. We see this right at the beginning of the Bible, right to the very end of the Bible, that God is a God who desires our praise. And we as his children, we come into his presence to worship, to praise him. And Jesus has a lot to say about this in, in John's gospel, John chapter 4. Right? In John chapter 4, Jesus kind of meets up with this woman and they start talking. And they start talking about a very you know, easy subject to talk about. They start talking about sex and they start talking about sleeping around and start talking about living with someone who's not your spouse and the conversation, you know, the lady's kind of sitting there going, oh, this guy knows way too much about my life. Because <laughs> he's like, yeah, I don't know, you, you, you were married X number of times and you were divorced, and now you're living with another guy and this guy's not your husband. The lady's like, hmm, I love this topic, let's change the subject. <laughs> so instead of talking about something so divisive, like sleeping around and living with people not your spouse and sex, like, let's talk about something that doesn't cause any tension in the church. Let's talk about worship. <laughs> Sex and worship. Want to split a church? Talk about those a lot. <laughs> right? And so this woman says, well, you Jews, you say that you have to worship this way, but we as Samaritans, we believe that we can worship this way. <laughs> and Jesus says to her, after they have this big conversation about worship, <laughs> Jesus says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvations from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For these are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. A time is coming and has now come. It's like that verse from Isaiah when Jesus said, this has become true in your hearing. And Jesus drops the mic. He drops the mic again. A time has coming and has now come when there will be true worshipers 
And the implication is if there are true worshipers, by definition, there means there are false worshipers. (laughs) False worship. That's one of those things that disturb me. (laughs) Jesus, every once in a while, drops these statements. And as a pastor, it's like, oh, um, I hope that's not my church. I hope that's not us. And this is one of those verses that God is, that there is a true form of worship. And then, it's, and then look what he says here in the verse, right at the very end of this. He says, these are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. See, God is a seeking God. When Adam and Eve sinned from him, it wasn't Adam and Eve who pursued God. It was God who pursued them. You and I did not pursue God. God pursued us. God is a seeking God. And there is a form of worship that God is seeking. And if we get this wrong, there's huge implications for us in how we live Jesus. We've got to look at this. What is this? Right? So when Jesus is talking about that God is seeking true worshipers, it doesn't say that God is seeking the best public speaker. It doesn't say God is seeking out the most charismatic church. It does not say God is looking for manifestations or anything like that. None of that is in the text. It doesn't say which church has the biggest auditorium, which church has the biggest lights, which church has the most Instagram followers. (laughs) But he's addressing a heart issue. He's addressing the heart that you and I bring before God. Do we truly adore him? When you get ready for church, to come here on a Sunday morning, what does your morning look like? How's your heart? I remember in my family, there are days, I'm the pastor. There are days I'm the grumpiest, crabbiest person on the planet on my way here. Having to wake kids up and get people ready, and the kids take too long in the shower. Now it's finally my turn, and the water's cold, and I hate cold water. And then, and then, and then I'm in the car, and, and, and someone who used the car yesterday didn't put gas in it. And then and i got to get gas, and I'm running late. And then, and then, and then. That's your heart. Are you coming prepared to worship? There are people all over the world who are far from God and who are accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. And do you know where the number one place that happens is in the world? It's not a Billy Graham evangelistic crusade. It's not a parachurch ministry. The number one place where people still accept Jesus as Lord and Savior is in the local church. Sometimes we forget that. Because Paul talks about this, that when the children of God come into the presence of God in a spirit of adoration, God shows up. And the non-Christians in the room know it. Paul says, they look at us in our worship and say, wow, God is truly among them. 
That's the kind of worship I'm talking about, right? Worshiping that way. Yada, knowledge of God. Changes how we live before God in worship. And, and here's what I know about you. Because I know this for a fact because you're a human being. You are an amazing worshiper. You are. You are an amazing worshiper. And I know personally for a fact some of you are amazing worshipers because I've gone to pro sporting events with you. And you are an amazing worshiper at a Sens game. I have seen some of you at your kids' soccer games. You are an incredible worshiper at your kids' soccer. I have seen you in your entertainment. I have seen you in your business. I have seen you with your finances. You are an amazing worshiper. The problem is, in those moments, you are worshiping a very bad and false god. In those moments. You are an amazing worshiper, but some of us, we get hooked on worshiping a bad God. And then we come into church, into the very presence of God himself, the one who has saved us from our sins. And we give him very false worship. What does this look like? How do we play this out? We want to be a church that is living Jesus, because these are the words of Jesus. He says this in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. Um, what's his name? The guy, um, Chan, the guy who wrote the, Francis Chan, thank you, wrote the book True Love, uh, Crazy Love. And he said this, it's very easy to grow a church without, the, without Jesus. Get a good speaker and a good band and a good system, you can grow a church to thousands of people. But the worship is a farce. <laughs> the worship is a farce. What does living Jesus in our worship look like? Two quick things I want to do. And I want to pull this from Psalm 100. This is a great psalm. It's a beautiful picture of what worship should look like. In Psalm 100, we read this. Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him, singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever, and his faithfulness continues to each generation. That's what we do when we gather. That's the heart of worship in spirit and in truth. The Spirit in us, the Holy Spirit in us, all of our mind, our soul, our strength, and the truth of God's Word, that we make sure that we don't do anything apart from the truth of Scripture in our worship. When people go, well, I like to worship this way because this is how I feel but it does not align with the Bible. could be a farce. could be a farce. Right? So the first thing is, do we truly worship in awe of God? Do you come here on Sunday just being in awe of God? Um, I love it when people come to me and say, Pastor, can you explain God to me? And I will go, I can't. The more seminary courses I take and the more theological books I read 
And the more I like to think I'm knowing God, the more God is an amazing mystery to me. I am so in awe of God. I'm in awe of God of what he has done in my life. I come from a broken family. I come from a family very far from God. I love my family dearly, and I honor and respect them, but we didn't grow up in this environment. (laughs) And statistics say I should be divorced by now. (laughs) But God has stepped into our lives, and I am in awe that he chooses schmo like me. (laughs) In my sinfulness, in my brokenness, (laughs) it makes no sense to me. I'm in awe of creation. Yesterday, I was cleaning some kids through eggs at my house a few weeks ago. I don't know why. Pick on RevCab, I guess it was. It was awesome. So I'm out there scrubbing it, and I marveled at the complexity of an egg as it has baked onto my front window over the last three weeks. I was a little busy. It took me a while to get to it. (laughs) And it's caked on. And I'm like, wow, eggs are really cool. Not on my house, but... Just the concept of it. And I'm standing in my garden, which I haven't weeded all summer, and there's bugs all around me, and this spider comes crawling up my leg, and I freak out, I kill it, and then I marvel at it. (laughs) Well, that thing is amazing. (laughs) I smited it, and I felt pretty raw, okay? And then I look at the stars and the creation, and I'm just in awe of him. (laughs) This is what... The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Do we come into the presence of God in awe? Psalm 95 says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before him, the Lord our God, our maker. Great Men kneel in awe before Jesus. The wise men in the birth of Jesus, little babies, kneel before him. Kings bow down before him. Leaders throughout human history have bowed down before him in awe of him. That this carpenter from a backwater town could radically change the world. (laughs) In awe. And one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Do we come to him in awe? And the other thing is, do we come to him in intimacy? Right? David says this in Psalm 27, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. But David is saying, if I could have just one thing, just one thing, All I want is intimacy with God. I was talking with a leader once and talking about spiritual gifts and manifestations and blessings. And this guy is kind of what I would call more that prosperity type of teaching. And God wants to give you things. God wants to give you things. God wants to give you things. And I threw a monkey wrench into his theology. And I said, what if the only thing at the end of your life you ever receive is Jesus? Is that enough? What if he doesn't give you riches? What if he doesn't give you health? What if he doesn't give you certain spiritual gifts? What if at the end of your life, the only thing you have received is Jesus? Is that enough? For David, it was absolutely. That's intimacy. That is yada. 
knowledge of God changes how we live our lives vertically before God. And as we change our lives vertically before God in worship, then that begins to impact horizontally our our relationships with everybody else. And as a church, what we are incredibly passionate about is what we call nurturing relationships. Right? When this church started 45 years ago, they wrote a purpose statement. And the purpose statement they wrote is this. 45 years ago, this is what they wrote, and it is still true today. It says, Greenbelt Church exists to worship God and to draw people closer to God through Jesus Christ by personal evangelism, ongoing discipleship, and nurturing relationships. You and I are the display of God's splendor in how we deal with our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. You and I, our relationships are called to look radically different than the world's relationships. In the New Testament, there are over 100 verses that we call one another verses. Not going to read them all. There's over a hundred of them. But they're instructions, they're commands from Jesus and the apostles on how we are to do life together in nurturing relationships. Bear one another's burdens. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. All of those kind of verses. One third of those 100 verses are about unity. They're about unity, commands that deal with the church getting along with one another. Another third of them are commandments about love, about loving one another. And about 15% of them are about humility, that we need to humble ourselves before one another. Don't think too proud about yourself before one another. And then there's a few other ones mixed in there, like greeting each other with a holy kiss. That always makes me awkward when I go to my friend's Mennonite church and this guy comes up and gives me a big old peck on the lips. Whoa! They literally practice the holy kiss thing there at that church. I've never been back. Um, (laughs) Cool, that works for you. That's fine. Um, (laughs) You and I today live in a culture of self. We live in a culture today that is offended by everything. Everybody's offended. Everybody's offended. You post something online, they're offended. You say something out loud, they're offended. I once put on my Facebook page that I didn't like a movie. And some of my friends liked it, and some of my friends tried to change my mind. And because of the way Facebook works, when my friends start posting, then other people I don't know can start posting. And this complete, total stranger... Complete stranger writes this huge thing on my Facebook, F-bomb this and F-bomb that, and you're an f in this, and you're an f in, and just like, <laughs> I didn't like it. I slapped fifteen ninety nine down on the 3D version of the movie. I didn't like the movie. Like, what's the big deal? Hugely offended. Hugely offended. And one of my, little, one of my buddies puts this little comic like, um, read his profile page. See what he does for a living. Ha, ha, ha. You know? <laughs> I left it on there because it's hilarious. I can't wait to meet this guy face to face one day. We're going to have a great conversation about this movie. Can't wait. We're in a culture of self. We're in a culture that's easily offended. We are a culture of come and go as we please. We are a culture where we are so connected through social media, but yet 
We actually know through studies that the millennial generation is the most connected generation ever on the planet, and it is the most lonely generation. There are more millennials dealing with anxiety and depression and on medication because they experience deep, incredible loneliness in a world that is so connected. There's something wrong with our culture. And nurturing relationships mean that we will care for one another. This past summer, the elders and I did this work on kind of our vision and our mission, our core values and where we're going. And I made a statement in, that, in one of those meetings this summer. And the statement I said, and it's a true statement, Greenbelt is an easy church to leave. Because we're busy. We have things going on in our lives. And Greenbelt, this past week, I went through our church database and kicked off, we have this little box that says inactive. And I made 50 people inactive. And some of these people were people who came once and never came back. But some of these other people were people who've been part of this church for decades. Um, People who were leaders here. People who served in ministry here. People who volunteered here. People who were part of life groups. It was very easy to leave. And I repent of that. We, as a church, if we truly care about nurturing relationships, we would be a church that is very hard to leave. When that person leaves, we show up at their door. Right? Jesus tells a story about a hundred sheep, and one of them leaves. It's not, a past, it's not a parable about evangelism. They're already sheep. They're already in Jesus' pen. They're Christians. They're in the church. And one of them leaves. Jesus runs after them, brings them back. Greenbelt needs to be a church that is very hard to leave because we care about one another. And that's where we want to go. We're not there yet. That's one of those things that we need to grow on because our lives need to look radically different than the world. Maybe we're too Canadian. Oh, we just need to give everyone their space. We don't want to interfere in their lives. Read this book. (laughs) I think we spend too much time trying to interfere in the lives of non-Christians and not enough time interfering in our lives together as Christians. (laughs) These one one another statements, the 100 verses, they're not for how you deal with your non-Christian family and friends. (laughs) They're how we deal with one another. (laughs) And so our lives need to be radically different. How are we living Jesus in worship? How are we living Jesus with each other? It's hugely important because no other group of people on the planet live this way. No other group of people worship God the way we do. No other group have been knit together by one spirit like we have. No other group on the planet has been touched by the heart and mission of God to bring this message of hope to a world that desperately needs to know it. So how are you doing in living Jesus? How are you doing in living Jesus? I'm going to call our our worship team back up. And the the only way I felt we can respond to a message like this is by worshiping. (laughs) 
And, and some of you today, um, maybe you're stuck. Maybe you're stuck. Maybe you've got this really good head knowledge of Jesus. You've got this really good head knowledge of the Bible. But for some reason, it's just not changing your life. It's just not kind of having this impact and changing you. And if that's you today, I really pray that as we step into this time of worship, that God would meet with you and speak to you. And, and this doesn't mean when we worship in awe and we worship in intimacy, it doesn't mean we all have to be raising our hands and crying. And, and I get that. We're all different. I was over there singing that last song. And there's a part when we start singing about a powerful name it is. I can't even sing those words. I can't. It just brings me to tears every time we sing it. And so I just, I don't expect everyone to be that. But I expect, and I love how James McDonald put it in his book, that you would redline who you are. That you would redline who you are, whatever that looks like for you. So if you've been stuck in intimacy, if you've been stuck in the awe of who God is, maybe you've been going to church too long. I think sometimes as Christians, we forget what we have been saved from. We have been saved from eternity separated from God's love. can't even fathom a world without God's love in it. And all eternity in complete darkness and suffering without the love of God in any kind of way. We've been saved by that, not because of our own efforts, but because what Jesus has done. Maybe some of you worship is a block for you because you have relationships with other Christians that have gone kaput. <laughs> and maybe some of us need to repent and seek forgiveness. <laughs> maybe others of us need to forgive. <laughs> maybe some of us need to pursue the 50 people that I've ticked off as inactive and said, get your butt back here. We love you. <laughs> We're not going to let you live in this sin anymore because we love you that looks like for you, all of us have got a step that we can take in living Jesus through the unashamed adoration of God or through the nurturing relationships with one another. So I'm just going to invite all of us to stand. I'm going to pray and then the team's going to lead us in worship. So Father God, we praise you and thank you that we can come to this place in awe of what Jesus has done for us. I thank you for this family. And what I love about this church is we are family, but we're a big family. There are some crazy cousins here. And I may not know them as well as I'd like, but God, you know them. And we want them to be known by someone. It's not about everybody knowing everybody, but everybody must be known by someone. So spirit, as we worship, in spirit and in truth, guide each of us. Help us take a greater, another step forward in living Jesus this ministry season. Lord, you are a God who multiplies, and we do just a little step, and you take that step of faith and multiply it greatly. So help us, Lord, to live Jesus more and more through worship of you and through our relationships with one another. We pray this in Jesus' name.